0: Good to see all of you. It's good to be uh, back in the pulpit. Several of our AFCers are gone. They're skiing. We should pray for them. I'm assuming the reports so far are good. Everybody, okay? Y'all know? Okay, good. Thumbs up. Um, want to... Um, ask you to do something for me this morning. I hope that you do this every time we're together, but I want to actually challenge you this morning to do this as we prepare to engage God's Word. I want you to keep in mind that listening is an action verb. So I need you to listen carefully. I doubt A&M will hire a basketball coach today, so put our phones down, turn them off. Focus not so much on me, but, but on the Word, because I think Jesus has something to say in this text in Matthew chapter 6 that we desperately need to hear. Five weeks ago, I preached from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Most of you probably remember all the points of the message that day. If you didn't, I will remind you, I preached on turning the other cheek, walking the other mile. And during that sermon, I posed a question. How will people come to know Jesus if they do not see Him in us? And in response to that question, I said that we in churches of Christ have struggled to practice these principles that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in our own fellowship, let alone in relationships with others. And I told you that I would have more to say about that and the impact that it's having on us when I return to the pulpit and I am back in the pulpit. And I have more to say. Before I begin, I need to set the stage. In Letters to the Church, a fairly recently released book by Francis Chan, he makes the following observation. As long as I have been alive church attendance has been in decline. And he's primarily talking about in the United States. But I want you to also notice the parenthetical, compared with overall population growth. While it may not be true for all churches in Brazos County, what he says here is true for us as a congregation. So a few statistics that I want to share with you. In 1980, the population of Brazos County was 93,588. In 2015, the population was 203,056. By 2050, the projected population would be just under 420,000 people. So let's back up a little bit as we look at these numbers. In 35 years, our county has doubled in size. The churches of all kinds in our area, should be growing in leaps and bounds, and some are. But many others are not, ours included. Now this is a phenomenon that is occurring all over the United States, particularly in churches of Christ. And I'll share some statistics with you next Sunday, but I need as many people in our church as possible to be here. I'm really hoping after today you'll come back next week. But I need our AFCers to be here because we need to hear these these statistics. So I need to wait one more week before I share some specific numbers. My hunch is you already know what's happening anecdotally. So the question is what's going on? Why are we not growing? And how do the words that Jesus provides, how do they give us a direction in a time when more and more people in the United States seem less interested, particularly in becoming part of an established religious institution? So what I want to do this morning is start broadly, and I want to narrow our focus. I discovered an author this past week, and I... Don't think there's a whole lot of people who even know who this guy is. I would be shocked if 5,000 people had read his book. I found it in one of the most obscure places on the planet, a place called Muddy Pond, Tennessee. His name is Gary Miller. And he gives us some insights into where our culture is. He says, we live in a fragmented society. People feel unloved, unaccepted, and alone And vast amounts of money and time are being spent trying to fill an inner void. Many are filling their lives with entertainment and sports, while others search for fulfillment through social media and other online forums. Something inside longs for connection. Yet in spite of all of this effort, there's never been a more socially disconnected society. Something vital is missing. I'm going to ask Gary just to leave that quote on screen for just a few moments because I want you to to please take a look at it. And I want you to process with me just for a few minutes. Do any of you feel what Miller describes here? Do any of you feel unloved? Do you feel unaccepted? any of you feel lonely? Do you take any of the actions on this list that he describes in response to what you're feeling? Do you spend more money? Do you spend more time online? And even in the midst of connecting more, do you ever feel, I don't think I've ever felt connected less. If the answer to that question is yes, then I have another question for you. Would you like to feel something different? Would you like to feel closer to God? Would you like to feel closer to Jesus? Would you like to feel closer to others? Would you like to see the feelings of unloved and unaccepted and alone be replaced with feelings of being loved and being accepted and being in community? For the rest of us who may already feel loved. Who may feel accepted. Who may feel like we have a place in community. I have a question for you. Would you like to see our church grow again? If your answer to those questions, if the answer is yes, then I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Now as with other Sermon on the Mount texts that we have discussed during the season of imitation, this is not easy teaching to put into practice. Our flesh rails against these words of Jesus as we spend much of our lives pursuing and protecting our stuff. Jesus so wants us to get this, not to just give mental assent to it, but to own these words deep in our hearts as we reveal to everyone within our circles of influence what truly matters the most. So let's take a closer look. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy And where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Leon Morris makes a really great observation about this text. He says the treasures that Jesus speaks of here are are stored up, not by performing meritorious acts, and certainly not by almsgiving, but by belonging to and living by the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't the only place in the New Testament where we see this teaching. As a matter of fact, Luke records a few additional words that Jesus offered as he taught this particular truth. In Luke 12, verses 33 and 34, we have this fuller picture where Luke says, or Jesus says in Luke, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A a, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Luke's transition is the exact same transition that Matthew offers. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When New Testament writers use the term heart, they they speak about those things that are of central importance to us. What constitutes our true character. Not who we say we are, not even who we think we are, but who we truly are as displayed by our words and by our actions. Jesus' message here is clear. A kingdom heart beats in rhythm with God's heart. A heart that trusts in anything material will never have enough. And if we're searching for security and material possessions, we're looking in the wrong place. The message renders Jesus' teaching this way. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths, corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasures in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. So as I think about what the translators are trying to help us understand here, I kind of put together my own own version of these these texts. You can call this the G-A-V if you like. Don't hoard treasures down here where the laws of physics And the desires of the flesh take their toll. Stockpile treasures where God is. Where no one or no thing can take it from you. And where does God want your heart? He wants it to be with Him. Earlier I asked you, would you like to feel closer to God? Do you want to be closer to Jesus? Do you want to be closer to other people? Would you like to see the feelings of unloved and unaccepted and loneliness be replaced with feelings of being loved and being accepted and being in community? For the rest of you who may already feel loved and accepted and in community, I ask, would you like to see the church grow again? If our answer to these questions is yes, then we have to shift our focus from the right here and the right now to something that is much more meaningful, more permanent, more life-giving, and more about what living in kingdom is like instead of trying to live like a king. And I tell you, church, it's not going to be easy. Making this transition is not going to be easy. There's a lot of different reasons for that. Let's start with some that are a little bit obvious. Again, quoting Gary Miller. Surrounding culture, mainstream media... And marketing agencies constantly remind us not to do anything we don't enjoy. Life is short, we are told, so why spend it being miserable? You don't enjoy your occupation? Move on and find another job. Your wife is not fulfilling your needs? Get a divorce. There are plenty of other women out there. Carried over into church life, this message fits nicely with our human desire to rebel against authority not satisfied with your church. Tell the leaders, and if they don't see it your way, move on. the buffet table is long and there are plenty of other churches to choose from this self-focus left unchecked is deadly to vibrant church life but the idea that life should be easy seeps into theology as well after all if life centers around our happiness shouldn't the path to god be easy as well yeah i think miller helps us understand something here I think he helps us understand one of the greatest obstacles to discipleship. And that obstacle is the obstacle of personal happiness expressed through self-focus. Self-focus helps us understand the next word that Jesus speaks. Words that have actually puzzled scholars for centuries because they don't exactly understand what Jesus means. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Given the context, it seems to make sense that Jesus is saying if you focus the lens of your heart on your desires for you, you are actually not going to be able to see a thing. You're going to become so disoriented that you're just going to stumble all over the place. The more you get, the harder it's going to be to see. But He doesn't stop there. He offers this, this other outcome. The more you give away, Well, now you're starting to see clearly. I think what Jesus is saying here is that generosity is the currency of heaven. As Jesus so masterfully does, he he reinforces deep spiritual teaching with an example that his audience could easily relate to. And so he continues, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now money is not intrinsically good or evil. For believers, money is a means to a gospel end before it is anything else. But but try to straddle the fence and buy your way into heaven or bow before the altar of your investment portfolio and the likelihood of grasping the deep meaning of Jesus' teachings here is, in the words of our Lord and Savior, impossible. He says you cannot, absolute, serve both. Money is the example that Jesus uses, but it's not an exhaustive application. The same could be said for anything material that we put our trust in, and in a broader sense, anything that is not in heaven or anything that is not with God. And this includes our understanding of church. If we begin using worldly metrics to define being part of God's church. In Letters to the Church, Francis Chan makes the following observation. We live in a time when people go to a building on Sunday mornings, attend an hour-long service, and call themselves members of the church. Does that sound shocking to you? Of course not. It's perfectly normal. It's what we grew up with. We all know good Christians go to church, but have you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anything in Scripture that is even remotely close to the pattern we have created? Do you find anyone who, quote, went, unquote, to church? Try to imagine Paul and Peter speaking like we do today. Hey, Peter, where do you go to church now? I go to the river. They have good music and I love the kids programs. Cool. Can I come check out your church next Sunday? I'm not getting much out of mine. Totally. I'm not going to be there next Sunday because little Matthew has soccer. But how about the week after? Sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles group? Okay, now let's stop right there for just a second. Chan is not making fun of, nor am I making fun of churches who have the name The River or any name like that. It's certainly not wrong to have a singles group. Good music, all those kinds of things. No problem with that. But what he's trying to say, the back message is, do you hear the consumerism? creeping into the conversation. It's comical to think that Paul and Peter speaking like this. Well, uh, yet that's normal conversation among Christians. Why? There's so many things wrong with the above conversation, I don't even know where to start. The fact that we have reduced the sacred mystery of church to a one-hour service we attend is staggering. Yet that's the way I defined it for years. I didn't know anything different. It's what everyone did so I didn't think to question it. Church, the time has come for us to question what we do and why we do it. Earlier I noted that we in churches of Christ have struggled to practice the principles of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, in our own fellowship, let alone in our relationships with others. And although not always true, we have often valued some treasures to the exclusion of others. The list is long, but I just want to showcase a few for the next few moments. Here's one thing we have often treasured when we disagree, we divide. I don't know who wrote this little poem. I just stumbled across it. It's anonymous. But I think it's very fitting. To dwell in love with saints above, why that will be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, why that's a different story. Leroy Garrett wrote in his book, A Lover's Quarrel, My Pilgrimage of Freedom and Churches of Christ, As many as eight wings and 26 different types of churches of Christ have been identified. Due in part to a spirit of divisiveness that has troubled the fellowship since its inception. Now I need to pause quickly and I need to make an observation if you are a guest, or if you are new to us, please don't think, get me out of here. I need you to hear me. Every family has issues. Including every church family. It's the families who don't bring to conscious awareness their issues that are in the deepest trouble. So I'm asking you to hang in there with us as we sort out God's priorities for our church. We've often treasured that when we disagree, we divide. We have also often treasured uniformity over unity. I realize that I'm quoting much from other authors today, but sometimes people put into words what I have in my head but can't express with my mouth. Francis Chan makes the following observation in letters to the church, and I'm begging you to hear these words and to own them in your hearts. When are we going to take God's promises seriously and spend our energy seeking unity? Not just the kind of unity where we avoid arguments with one another, but the kind where we truly live together as a family, where we meet one another's needs and care for one another regardless of the time or effort required. Unity doesn't come easily. Think of everything it takes for a family to stay together. All of the acts of service it requires. All the forgiveness and grace that must constantly be extended. All the times when one person's desires have to be lovingly laid aside for the desires of others. It's easy to talk about unity, but it requires a mutual commitment that is all but absent from our churches. If we're going to see this become a reality, we need to count the cost and decide whether we will commit I don't know about you, but this doesn't come naturally to me. I'm an introvert who is happy with a few close friends. Obedience often grates against our natural desires. But if we only obey when it feels natural, then Jesus is not truly Lord of our lives. Pushing the church to live as a family is not some gimmick Some flavor of church that would be fun to try. It's commanded and it's offered. Crafting the church into a truly united and supernaturally loving family is the very thing God is wanting to do. Do we believe God is capable? Do we trust that His design for His church is what will be most effective? We have come up with countless strategies to reach the lost when God promises that unity is the method that will work. Think about that. God gave us instructions on how to reach the world, yet we abandon the one set of instructions He gave us even as we scramble to create classes and programs and events that promote everything but the strategy God gave us. We have often treasured that when we disagree, we must divide. We have often treasured uniformity over unity, but perhaps most damaging, we have treasured preference over purpose. I want to ask you to take a little journey with me in your mind. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you have purchased tickets for an orchestra performance in Rudder Theater. The concert features the music of Handel with a promised thrilling finale that features Handel's Messiah. The orchestra has practiced for months. Everyone knows his or her part. The music, considered one of the greatest masterpieces in performance history, has been studied diligently. The conductor has listened critically offering coaching where appropriate, calling the string section for a little more volume here and the percussion a tighter staccato there. Ultimately, it's time for curtain. The lights dim. People clear their throats. A cough here. A glimpse of someone silencing her cell phone there. The quieting of the horns and strings as the performers make Their final adjustments. All is quiet. The curtain peels back to reveal the orchestra prepared to deliver the results of hundreds of hours of practice. The audience applauds. They're on the edge of their seats in anticipation of dozens of musicians playing a myriad of instruments building to a crescendo of the Messiah. I'm so excited, you think to yourself. I've been waiting weeks for this performance. I've heard so many great things about this orchestra. Here it comes, the first measure. You check your watch. You turn to your spouse. You smile. You squeeze her hand. How wonderful it is to be in this place at this time for this purpose. The conductor takes his baton in hand and he taps it on the music stand and he raises it in preparation for that perfect tempo. And then he turns to the audience and says... Ladies and gentlemen, we're so glad you're here tonight. We realize that you have come to hear the music of Handel. But we've decided this evening that it will be more meaningful to you if instead of playing Handel, we all sit around and have a conversation about him. I'll go first And then each member of the orchestra will share their thoughts and they will explain how honored they feel to be part of an orchestra that plays his music. It's going to be an awesome night. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Now, if that really happened and you were in that audience and that's how it played out, how would you feel? Would you go, Oh, wow, this is going to be pretty cool. Not what I thought. I'm excited. I have a hunch you would not be a happy camper. I have a hunch you would be a little bit upset. And why would that be the case? Because an orchestra is designed to fill one primary purpose, which is what? To play music. It's the number one reason that an orchestra exists. Behind that purpose are several other things that need to occur. What to play, where, how, first chair, second chair, etc. All things that are necessary for an orchestra to deliver what it was primarily designed to deliver. I have a question for you. What is the purpose of the church? What is the primary purpose of the church? I believe it is to do for the world what Jesus did for the world while He was on earth. Behind that purpose, several other things have to occur. Prayer, fasting, study, patience, preparation, unity, All of that bound in a persevering love. Gary Miller puts it this way. God longs to fill that inner void in every human heart with His own presence. And He designed loving church communities to demonstrate His love to dysfunctional and lonely people. Church should be a place where the disconnected can connect. But this can only occur when believers sacrificially love each other. When tension and conflict characterize a local church, one can hardly expect the seeker to grasp the true nature of God or develop a curiosity about Christ. A couple of key phrases I want to draw your attention to. This can only occur when believers sacrificially love each other. Do you hear the shifting of the lens? Where we treasure, what we treasure who we treasure. I also want you to notice when tension and conflict characterize a local church, one can hardly expect the seeker to grasp the true nature of God or develop a curiosity about Christ. He doesn't stop there. He says there is a time to leave a fellowship. And sometimes that decision is forced on us. However, choosing to divide a church or leave a fellowship, should only occur after every possible path of reconciliation has been pursued. If you are in a situation where ecclesiastical divorce seems inevitable, are you actively working toward reviving what remains? It will require require prayer, fasting, and a deep desire to demonstrate something beautiful to the world. It will also require commitment to the local body and the purpose Christ has for His church, remember, we have a God who loves to breathe new life into impossible situations. There is much to do if we want to be the church God created us to be. We must be willing, all of us, to be on our knees in prayer to the Lord. We must, all of us, be willing to ask God. And in many cases, we need to be asking one another for forgiveness. For storing up treasure in the wrong places. We must allow all Scripture, not just our favorite proof text, but all Scripture, to guide our polity and our practice. And I'm asking you to do two things to help us ingrain the teaching of Jesus in our hearts. The first involves First Thessalonians chapter five, if you want to turn your Bibles there. And I want you to watch, as we read the scripture together, how the Holy Spirit echoes the teachings of Jesus. As he speaks, not to church leaders, but to church members. If you say, I sometimes don't know what to do here. I sometimes just feel lost. Paul gives you a road map for your first few steps toward a different outcome. Beginning in verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that the day of the Lord should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Let's go back to Matthew 6. What does this say? Believers can see clearly kingdom dwellers kingdom chasers jesus people can see clearly verse 8 but since we belong to the day let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet for god did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our lord jesus christ he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we may live together with him therefore encourage one another and build one another up just in fact you are already doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. And boy, do we have a lot of people who work hard among us. Who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. That's what I'm asking you to do as a church. It's what Paul asked us to do. Is what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to ask us to do, to challenge us to do, to command us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. The second thing I'm asking you to do is to mark your calendars for Sunday evening, March 31st at 6 p.m. All small groups, anybody wanting to join a small group, anyone who just wants to know what a small group is, anyone who just wants to pray for small groups, I'm going to ask you to be in this room on Sunday night, March 31st at 6 o'clock We're going to talk through living these and other teachings of Jesus out in community. Please do everything you can to be here that night. Twice today, I asked you, would you like to feel closer to God? Would you like to be closer to Jesus? Would you like to be closer to others? Would you like to see feelings of unloved and unaccepted and alone be replaced with feelings of being loved and being accepted and being in community. For the rest of you who already feel loved, who already feel accepted, who are already in community, I'm asking one more, once more, would you like to see our church grow again? If our answers to those questions are yes, then storing up treasures in heaven adjusts. The lens of our hearts so that we may see our way into those types of relationships that build the types of churches that Jesus envisioned all along. We're going to sing together. This may be a time to pray. It may be a time to process you may want to turn to the person next to you and say, "Boy, I really would like to spend some time praying." Even as we're singing, it could be that you want to speak to one of our shepherds. There'll be a couple at the back. We'll be down here. If you want to be baptized today? Anything that's on your heart, church? We're going to ask you to share that here in the next few moments. I do want to encourage you. Please come back next week. I have some more things to say. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Okay, let's stand together. Let's sing.